Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. As our story, the baddest man in the West, Harvey Kid Curry Logan, continues. I think this story, which takes place at the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century, offers a unique perspective on America's history. The West had passed from the largely unexplored frontier of Lewis and Clark to a land of opportunity, which would be crossed first by wagon trains and then railroads, followed by small towns, which would become cities, and they grew, and law enforcement grew with them. Butch and Sundance saw the change coming and hot-footed it to Argentina, telling the ones who remained behind, the country's changing, boys, and we got to change with it. But most of the others stayed, like Kid Curry, and he and the rest of them would all end up paying the price. On July 3, 1901, near Wagner, Montana, about 200 miles east of Great Falls, the Kid, Butch Cassidy, Harry Longabaugh, later known as the Sundance Kid, Ben Kilpatrick, known as the Tall Texan, and Camilla Hanks, known as Depth Charlie, held up the Great Northern Express train, shattering their express car with dynamite and charges of black powder. The robbers rode off with $65,000 in banknotes, and the gang scattered to make it difficult for posses to follow. Harvey Logan, Kid Curry, had other business to attend to, that being a mission to kill the man who killed his brother Johnny. He arrived at the Winters Gill Ranch late on Wednesday, July 25, 1901. All night long he waited outside for Winters to appear. At sunup, the rancher came out onto the back porch with a pail of water to brush his teeth. As he bent over, Kid Curry, waiting near the corral, rested his rifle on the corral fence post and shot him twice, then jumped on his horse and ran. Gill ran out in time to see the killer running to his horse, mounting it, and riding away, and identified Curry as the killer. The nearest doctor was sixty miles away, but Gill and a ranch hand put Winters in a wagon and made it to town along the deeply rutted and now scorching hot road. But Winters died soon after reaching town, that town being Harlem, Montana. He had been shot twice with two soft-nosed thirty caliber bullets in the stomach, that done purposely to enable a long and cruel death. Bob Curry was still working behind the bar of the club saloon back in Montana, while Kid Curry's brother Lonnie was busy courting the daughter of a Lewistown rancher. Bob made the mistake of trying to cash stolen banknotes which were taken during the Wilcox robbery. He had set them to the Stockman's National Bank at Fort Benton for redemption. A few of the notes, which were numbered, also showed the burn marks from the dynamite charge, and the bank called in the Pinkertons. Lonnie received word within a week that the Pinkertons were in town, and he and Bob absconded to Cripple Creek, Colorado, with detectives in pursuit. From there they split up, with Lonnie heading for Dotson, Missouri, to visit with his Aunt Lee, who was Bob's mother. Remember, he was Bob Lee before he changed his name to Bob Curry. Bob had elected to stay behind in the mining camps. Lonnie passed one of those stolen bills in Dodson, and the bank recognized it. A posse soon surrounded the Lee farmhouse and called for Lonnie to surrender. Lonnie ran out, no doubt trying to save the farmhouse and his aunt, from flying bullets. He was wearing a heavy overcoat, and the snow was deep. He tried to reach a stand of timbers, but his progress was slowed by the deep snow, and he dropped behind the first rise in the ground he reached and returned fire. After a brief exchange, he rose and stumbled toward the posse, his six-shooter blazing, 
"'no doubt having it in his mind to go out in a blaze of glory. "'In seconds he was riddled with bullets and fell dead in the snow. "'Bob Curry, working as a Monty dealer at a club in Cripple Creek, "'was caught two weeks later. "'It was just after the turn of the century, "'and the wild bunch was breaking up. "'Butch Cassidy had begged Kid Curry to head south "'with he and Sundance and Eddie Place, "'but Curry declined, "'refusing to believe that the Wild West days were finished, "'as Butch had said many times.' The kid told Butch he was going to travel, enjoy his money, and the company of women, while organizing another gang. In the fall of 1901, Kid Curry began a tour of the South. It's said that he was never without the company of attractive women. There was Annie Rogers, a slender redhead, who stayed with him in Nashville, Tennessee, and later said she found him to be a perfect gentleman. He posed with her for a photograph while in Nashville, despite the fact that he was on wanted posters everywhere. She was pretty, and Curry, in a suit and tie, his hair and mustache neatly trimmed, his shoes shined, looks like a banker. Then there was Maudie Davis, who later remembered how he had bought her a fox skin. In a bar in Knoxville, on December 13, 1901, Kid Curry was playing pool when he got in a disagreement with a couple of locals who were small-time hoodlums, Luther Brady and Jim Bowley. The kid at one point put down his cue stick, walked to the bar, and tossed off a drink. Then he returned to the table, knocked Brady over a barrel, and started strangling him. Brady's friend Bowley tried to stop him, and Curry shot him three times, then pushed the gasping Brady to the floor and began breaking bar furniture overheads. Officers William Saylor and Robert Dinwiddie soon arrived to break up the fight, and Curry shot Saylor four times and Dinwiddie once, "'before he decided he'd had enough of Knoxville. "'The Knoxville Journal and Tribune reported, "'His face knitted in a demoniacal fury. "'He leaped through the back door, "'only to fall twenty feet into an open railroad cut. "'Battered, bleeding, coatless, "'and limping from a sprained ankle, "'the kid was somehow able to elude a posse "'and their bloodhounds for three days "'in sub-zero temperatures. "'On the afternoon of January 15th, "'near Jefferson City,' About twenty miles from Knoxville, Curry encountered an enemy he'd never faced before the telephone. A Jefferson City store owner named Carey called the Knoxville police and said he'd seen Curry walking down a local road. And shopkeeper Carey then waited for the posse and waited. And finally, he and three other store owners decided to go after Curry on their own. They finally discovered Curry, nearly freezing, huddled over a small fire. He was slow putting up his hands. Carvey, Carvey explained, but he finally surrendered. When the self-appointed posse arrived back in Knottsville, word had already spread, and a crowd of between two and 5,000 persons were waiting near the depot to catch a glimpse of the outlaw. The kid gave a silver watch to a posse member who had shown some kindness and insisted his name was Wilson and that they had the wrong man. Lowell Spence, a Pinkerton detective, soon arrived in Knoxville and identified Logan. Logan had been searched, and a baggage check was found in his room, which led to a telescope bag in his room containing $3,000 in stolen banknotes, three suits from a fine Denver men's shop, and a note from Fanny Porter, operator of the famous Texas Bordello in Hell's Half Acre. It read, We'll wait until parties arrive. Kid Curry became a celebrity in jail. The sheriff even declared an open house that week, and people could enter the jail and gawk at, even shake hands with, Kid Curry. 
a Knottsville reporter recorded one day's events with this. Logan stood at the bars of his cell most of the time, receiving and indulging in fun with his visitors. He answered the questions politely, unless there were some things asked that he didn't wish to make public. Most of his visitors simply asked him how he felt, just to hear the sound of his voice. But some looked at him as though he were a corpse, then passed on. He was the recipient of many cigars. The public had read in the Sentinel that he did not smoke cigarettes, and none of these, nor the material used in making them, were offered to him. Curry was indicted on 19 counts in Knoxville, each of those for each time he passed a banknote. Witnesses were brought in. Curry was found guilty and remanded for sentencing. It was a long wait in Knoxville, and his health was failing. By Christmas of 1902, he was planning his escape. Using a rubber band, he shot a letter out of his cell window with, Please mail this, on it, and it was mailed to an old friend who was a rancher in the Little Rockies in Montana. The letter read, I will get out of this scrape yet. I will show these people that they're not dealing with a soft thing. They call me the Napoleon of Crime. And mind, you should see how they flock to see me while this trial is on. And when I get out of this, Ed, look out for me. They talk about Harry Tracy, but if I don't give them a better run for their money, my name is not Harvey Logan. I'll cut my way through hell before they take me again. I am now waiting for my sentence. It'll be a light one, for the people out here are with me, and I've got all sorts of friends. Well, goodbye, old friend. It won't be long before I'm back in Montana, and when I'm there, there'll be hell to pay. On November 30th, 1902, Harvey Logan, a.k.a. Kid Curry, was sentenced to 20 years hard labor at a federal penitentiary and fined $5,000. Law enforcement agencies warned Sheriff Fox and the president of the Union Pacific that Logan was planning an escape and guards should be doubled. They also recommended that he not be sent to Columbus Penitentiary because his old pal, the tall Texan, Ben Kilpatrick, was there. An appeal was made, but fell through. Chuck Allen writes this for Nutsify, a Knoxville online paper. To say Harvey Logan had reached celebrity status in Knoxville would be a gross misunderstanding. A celebrity is someone who gives handshakes and autographs to fans, many of whom will gather for public encounters. President Theodore Roosevelt was a celebrity when he visited Knoxville during Logan's stay. And while local law enforcement concerned itself with his safety, public safety was never an issue as it was upon Logan's arrival. Thousands did not push and shove to catch only a glimpse or trample one another for a chance to touch him, as they did for the famous outlaw. The Knox County Jail had been solely designed to hold people inside, not to keep people out. Yet faced with a virtual siege, not from armed invaders or a gang of the kids' cronies, but from a mob of worshipful Knoxvillians. Sheriff J.W. Fox allowed open visitation of the kid that continued on and off up to the trial. On December 20, 1901 alone, the sheriff's office counted more than 1,000 visitors. No, Kid Curry was not a celebrity. He was a phenomenon, an obsession that held during and beyond the two-and-a-half-year chapter of his life that was Knottsville, Tennessee. Fortunately for the kid, that chapter ended on Saturday, June 27, 1903. Just seven months before, on November 30, 1902, the 6th U.S. Circuit Court had sentenced Logan to 20 years of hard labor. 
His appeal process at its end, he now awaited transfer from Knottsville to a federal penitentiary in Columbus, Ohio. At around 4.15 p.m., Saturday, June 27, 1903, Knott's County Jail Guard Frank Irwin was standing at Logan's cell having his usual small-talk chat with a prisoner. Across from the cell was a window looking out onto the Tennessee River. The two were talking about the river level, newly risen since a recent storm. Logan pointed to the water along the bank, and when Irwin turned to look, the kid lassoed him around the neck with a wire taken from a broom they let him use to sweep his stall. He then made Irwin turn around, and he tied the guard's hands to the bars with strips of cloth taken from his cell hammock. Using yet another lasso made from the hammock, he secured a shoebox from across the hall where the guards kept their pistols. Letting himself out of his cell with Irwin's keys, he forced at gunpoint jailer Tom Bell to open the cell block door. He then took Bell out into the courtyard where he ordered him to saddle Sheriff Fox's horse. Logan then rode to the gate and onto Prince Street, turned right onto Hill Street, and then another right onto Gay Street. He was last seen galloping across the Tennessee River on what would later be known as the Gay Street Bridge. We'll return to part two of Kid Curry, the baddest outlaw of them all, right after these sponsor messages. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And now, back to our story. How Kid Curry met his ultimate demise is still open to speculation. Some say he committed suicide in 1904 in Colorado to avoid capture after a railway robbery. Others say he escaped to South America, where he reunited with ex-Wild Bunch Confederates Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and continued robbing banks and trains. And still others say he wound up on a ranch south of Buenos Aires, where he married and had eight children before dying at the ripe old age of 76. As it turns out, we'll never know for sure. There were a number of strange circumstances regarding Logan's escape that made it look bad for Sheriff Fox, as well as the others. About half past five o'clock Saturday afternoon, W.D. Wright, the U.S. Attorney, and U.S. Marshal W.R. Austin left the attorney's office where they were having a business conversation. They mounted their horses and rode by the jail. It was only one hour since Logan had escaped, but they knew nothing about it. There were no people gathered around the jail, no posse getting ready to ride out, no excitement whatsoever. The marshal asked Fox, How is Logan? To which Sheriff Fox answered, He's gone. The sheriff replied, "'You must be joking.' "'No,' said Fox. 
It's a fact. The marshal asked the officer if he'd done anything about hunting Logan, and he replied he would have a posse go after him. The marshal doesn't write in his statement what he said to Fox after that, but it had to be blistering. Instead, in his statement, the marshal writes, I then began to phone all over the country, calling to my aid all the deputy marshals and sheriffs. The sheriffs of Blount and Sevier counties said they would start with posses, and they did. I was in frequent communication with all parts of the country and had the telephone companies notify all their patrons of the escape, giving a description of Logan. One hour later, the sheriff found Sheriff Fox speaking with Logan's attorney, Mr. Houck, who just happened to be in town. The marshal had spoken with the sheriff earlier when he took statements from the jailer and the deputy. Fox was now telling the story of the escape and mentioning that Jailer Irwin had deep marks on his neck from the wire. The marshal was dumbstruck. He asked Sheriff Fox, Did you not tell me that when you examined Irwin's neck, you said there were no marks on his neck? Fox admitted that was true. At that point, the marshal writes, he asked the U.S. attorney to leave the office, rather than air their laundry in front of Logan's attorney. Later, he and the attorney examined Logan's cell and Irwin's neck, and there were no marks on Irwin's neck. The whole thing was looking very fishy, and no doubt somebody was going to be getting paid well. In the meanwhile, Harvey Logan was convinced now he was a criminal mastermind, in addition to being a great ladies' man. He convinced himself that as many killings of lawmen were all done in self-defense. Therefore, he was just protecting himself, which he had a right to do. He never worked out the fact that he robbed people's hard-earned money from banks and trains. Instead, it was all about him. We mentioned the efforts of the Pinkerton detective, Charlie Seringo, in Episode 1, as he brothered up to Lonnie Logan's girlfriend in Montana to get a better picture of the man he'd been assigned to hunt down and kill if necessary. Seringo had taken that job after Tom Horn had handed it off to him, for reasons, according to many historians, that Horn was more interested in working as a hired killer for the Stockman's Association than hunting all over the West for Harvey Logan. We're putting up an episode soon, which contains excerpts from one of Charlie Seringo's autobiographies. He was the cowboy detective who became a celebrated Western author, and that'll soon be playing at 1001 Stories from the Old West. So keep an eye out for it. Logan's women friends were numerous. While in the jail in Knoxville, a local named Catherine Cross became infatuated with Logan. In fact, Knoxville detectives said she planned to leave the city with him when he broke out. Kid Curry's arrest and identification as a notorious Western outlaw and killer only increased her devotion. She visited him as often as possible, showing him much attention. A ballad had been written about the kid and his exploits, and it became very popular in Knoxville and Nashville. Catherine loved to sing it to entertain the kid, the guards, and other prisoners with her version. One night Catherine sang the ballad at a saloon in Knoxville, and a man demanded that she stop. When she refused, he stabbed her to death. She died in the hospital, whispering to police that she and the kid had planned to leave after his escape. There was every possibility she could have been the one who brought bribe money to the local sheriff and his deputies. Again, we'll never know. Curry had made good his escape into an area of Tennessee known as Jeffrey's Hell. Jeffrey's Hell is located in what is now the Cherokee National Forest in Monroe County, Tennessee, bordering the Tennessee-North Carolina line. It's rugged country, 
and hikers enjoy it today. But a posse back in those days would have been slowed down by the dense cover and rugged trails, as well as the fact that they were constantly exposed to ambush by a known killer. A number of posses searched that area, and while searching, they did run into mountain people, some of whom said they'd seen the outlaw carrying a small bag of provisions, making his way through the underbrush, which was probably pure B.S., as mountain hermits probably sided with the escapee, and there is doubt that Logan would have abandoned the bay horse he stole from the sheriff. One of those mountain men told the posse, "'Come spring, we'll look for the skeleton. We'll find it like we found the skeletons of those two others who went in and never came out.'" Not much is known about Logan's whereabouts between the date of his escape, June 27, 1903, and his capture in June of 1904, assuming it was him who was captured. I'm putting his life and death pictures up at Facebook forward slash 1001 Heroes, and you can decide. As mentioned above, there is the possibility that he was able to join Butch and Sundance and Etta in Argentina. He certainly had the money to do it. It seems hard to believe that with all the lawmen pursuing him, at all his old haunts in the States, he could have made it a year before being caught. Here's how he was captured. In the winter of 1904, the Great Falls, Montana Tribune reported the kid having been spotted in Denver, Colorado's Oxford Hotel, carrying two suitcases full of money that the man insisted on carrying himself. When a bellboy entered the room with a pitcher full of water, he saw Logan bending over the open suitcases. In each were bundles of new currency with a pistol lying beside them. The startled bellhop notified the desk clerk who called the police. When they arrived, the kid had made his escape by a side entrance. Next came reports that he had fled to Little Rockies country in northeast Montana, where he had many friends. One said he'd seen him and was told by the kid, I'll cut my way through here before they take me again. On June 7, 1904, three masked men held up the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad at Parachute, Colorado. They dynamited the express car but found the safe empty. A posse trailed them for two days, finally cornering the trio in a gully near Rifle, Colorado. In the gun battle, one man was hit. The posse heard his companions call out to him if he'd been hit. "'Yeah, I'm hard hit. I'm going to cash in quick. You go on,' was heard next. At dawn, the posse rushed the gully. They found a dead man, six-shooter in hand, and a bullet in his temple. His companions had made their escape during the night. He was identified as Tap Duncan, a cowboy who had worked on local ranches. Before the robber was buried, the sheriff had the local photographer snap pictures of the corpse identified as Tap Duncan, stretched out on a plank. He sent the photo along with superficial descriptions to the Pinkertons. It took weeks for the photographs to reach the Pinkertons' Chicago office, and when it did, the Pinkertons assigned Agent Lowell Spence to try and determine if the dead outlaw was indeed Harvey Logan. Spence would later report, After I had been ordered by Mr. Pinkerton to determine if the train robber who had committed suicide near Rifle was or was not Harvey Logan, I went to Colorado and interviewed everyone who had known the dead man when he was working as a cowhand under the name of Tap Duncan. I was particularly interested in scars, manner of speaking, walking, drinking habits, and skill with firearms. A great deal of information, I gathered, began to piece together a picture of the Harvey Logan I knew so well. 
I next went to the sheriff and requested that the body buried in Glenwood Springs be exhumed. This was done July 16, 1904. With me was W.S. Canada, special agent of the Union Pacific, and R. Brunazzi of the Globe Express Company. The corpse had not been embalmed and was badly decomposed. I took what measurements I could and tried to find what scars, such as bullet wounds, were present. I also had copies made of the original shots the sheriff's photographer had made of the man immediately after his death. I then returned to Knoxville and showed the shots and the two Bertillon charts to the sheriff, jailers, U.S. attorney, U.S. marshal, and all who had witnessed Logan up close. They all agreed with my conclusion. I returned to Chicago and made my report to Mr. Pinkerton. The agency came to the conclusion that Harvey Logan was dead. Some disagreed with my findings, such as Special Agent Canada and M.T. Brunazzi. They both insisted the dead man was not Kid Curry. Mr. Canada and Mr. Brunazzi said certain scars were not found on the body. That is true. There was a lack of scars. However, the corpse was decomposed, and this could have made the scars invisible. I had been by Kid Curry's side from the moment he was put into his cell until the day he was found guilty by the jury and then sentenced to prison, as I was so many years ago that the dead man buried as Tap Duncan was, indeed, Harvey Logan. I think it is significant that we never heard from Harvey Logan again. Bill Barlow's budget, in May 1913, in an article titled Butch Cassidy Killed, Logan is mentioned as being in Argentina with Butch Cassidy. Butch Cassidy, for many years, the pet outlaw of Fremont County, is reported to have been killed the past winter in South America, says the Lander Journal. Cassidy was a bank robber and a horse thief on a big scale and was doubtless one of the Wilcox train robbers who killed Sheriff Hazen of Converse County, north of Casper, while escaping into the hole-in-the-wall country. Pursuit finally became so close that he left the country and went to South America. According to the report, Cassidy and another bank robber named Kid Curry, who was raised in Crook County, had joined forces in the Argentine Republic. They held up a pack train and were wounded in the fight which followed. Then, unable to get away, Cassidy killed his companion, and then himself. Then there's this article from lislyle.lopkins.org, remembering the old songs. Harvey Logan, by Lyle Lofgren. Originally published in Inside Bluegrass, July 2004. Outlaw ballads are a staple of traditional American song, but we haven't covered very many of them. Perhaps that's because I, for one, have avoided Jesse James. Maybe someday we'll write about his ballad, but in the meantime, we'll look at a song about a Jesse admirer. Internet research is wonderful. I found out that Harvey Logan was definitely born in Rowan County, Kentucky, in 1865 and 1875, and in Tama County, Iowa, in 1867, and in Missouri at an unknown date. Everyone agrees he was raised in Missouri, where, according to one source, he met Jesse James, who gave him some dime novels which he read in order to learn how to be a bad man. He and his brother went west to wrangle cows and also rustle some of them. After working his way north from New Mexico to Montana, Harvey got in trouble when he killed a sheriff in a gunfight. On the run, he hooked up with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in Wyoming, where he took the nom de proscrit of Kid Curry. 
"'he developed a reputation as a quick draw "'and a cold-blooded killer. "'After several exciting bank and train robberies, "'murders and jailbreaks, "'he took his share of the loot to Knoxville, Tennessee, "'and became railroad man William Wilson. "'He put to marry, settle down, and farm "'until the money was all gone. "'Instead, on the night of December 13, 1901, "'he went to Ike Jones's pool hall "'and drank apricot brandy.' He played pool with a local named Luther Brady and got mad when Brady's game greatly improved after a big bet. He started to strangle Brady. Brady's partner tried to interfere, so Harvey shot him. The police came, and one of them broke his billy club over Logan's head. Harvey shot two policemen and escaped, but was arrested two days later. Evidently, none of these people died. The brandy must have spoiled his aim. Pinkerton detectives ID'd him as Harvey Logan. When the word spread about a real Western outlaw, thousands of people showed up at the Knoxville jail to get a glimpse of him. The sheriff allowed some to walk by the cell so they could touch his hand. The court, ignoring his popularity, convicted him for a Montana train robbery and sentenced him to 20 years. While awaiting transfer to a penitentiary, he broke jail, perhaps with some help, and took the sheriff's horse. He either settled down peacefully in Waxhaw, North Carolina, or went to Colorado, took the name Tap Duncan, and robbed the train. Cornered by a posse, June 9, 1904, he killed himself rather than surrender. No, that couldn't be. According to Logan's grandson, a genuine Tap Duncan died in Colorado. Logan escaped to Argentina and started a cattle ranch. "'married a senorita and had eight children, "'succumbing to old age in 1941. "'I can believe that. "'One of the few newspapers my father saved "'was an article from the 1930s "'that said the real Jesse James was still alive, "'an old man living a quiet life. "'There was a photograph to prove it. "'Robert Ford had really shot someone else. "'This version was sung by Jimmy Morris "'of Hazard, Kentucky in 1937.' recorded by Alan and Elizabeth Lomax, and is now in the Library of Congress. My guess is that it was composed shortly after the jailbreak to take local advantage of Logan's fame. A complete ballad of his exploits would be very long. What's described here is barely a footnote to the life of one of the frontier's baddest bad men. On one Saturday evening, just around the hour of two, Harvey Logan and his partner was playing a game of pool. Oh, my babe, my honey babe. They was playing for the money, and the money wouldn't go right. That's when old Harvey Logan got into a fight. Oh, my babe, my honey babe. Police heard the racket and the billies they did break. Harvey Logan gave him contest with a smoking thirty-eight. Oh, my babe, my honey babe. They took him down to Knottsville, and they locked him in the jail. Because he was a stranger, no one would go his bail. "'put the guard before him, and he marched him down the stairs. "'Says, all I want in this wide world is a jailer's big fat mare. "'Oh, my babe, my honey babe. "'Harvey, now, Harvey, you know you're doing me wrong. "'He said, hush up your crying, boy, and put that saddle on. "'He rode across the bridge, and he rode down to the gate. "'He said, I'd better be making time. "'The nights are growing late. "'He rode across the bridge. "'He looked up at the sky.' He said, I'd better be making time. The night is drawing nigh. 
Oh, my babe, my honey babe. He rode to the lane, and he rode down to the gate. He said, Goodbye, old Tennessee. I'm headed for another state. Oh, my babe, my honey babe. Here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, I'll share what I believe to be the facts regarding the legend as to whether or not the body discovered was that of Harvey Logan. Logan, like Butch Cassidy, was not stupid. He was also, according to Pinkerton reports, a close friend of Butch Cassidy, who did try to convince Logan to join him in Argentina, where he intended to raise cattle. When Logan was seen in Denver's fancy Oxford Hotel with two suitcases full of money, my thinking is that he was not planning on changing his pattern of living for a job as a ranch cowboy. He no doubt had already checked his regular baggage at the Denver train station and was preparing to take the train to the west coast where he could catch a steamer to Argentina. It was time to get the hell out of Dodge and enjoy the money in those suitcases. The careless Tap Duncan was no doubt Tap Duncan. Too bad the posse never caught up with his accomplices from the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad robbery, or they'd have found out for sure. Back on June 7th, that would have told the story of Tap Duncan, or Harvey Logan. I searched the answer to whether or not scars disappear after death. The only way scars disappear is when they're slowly replaced by new skin cells. After death, the process of generating new skin cells is not available. The scars remain. The pictures show that the body was not completely decomposed. My thinking is that Pinkerton probably heard rumors that Kid Curry had gone to Argentina to join up with Butch and Sundance. But by then, the finals were closed on Harvey Logan. He was dead and buried, thanks in large part to the efforts of the Pinkerton Agency. And they weren't being paid to chase rumors after the fact. So they had no problem marking up Harvey Logan as case closed, job well done. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Please do share our show with others and leave us a kind review if you're so moved. And we invite you to enjoy 1001 Stories from the Old West, as well as 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, and the best of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, as well as others. We'll be back next Sunday at 12 noon Eastern Time with a brand new story. Until then, stay safe, and we'll be back before you know it. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. 
and he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.